outside has everything. Whenever I think of a thing now, like skis or fireworks or islands or elevators or yo-yos, I have to remember they're real. They're actually happening in outside altogether. Makes my head tired. And people too, firefighters, teachers, burglars, babies, saints, soccer players and all sorts. They're all real in outside. Hello from the outside. I must have waited a pretty long time, actually. Seven years. Damn. Yeah. You're listening to Outside of a Dog, where we decide whether great literature is actually any good. Hello and welcome to Outside of a Dog. My name is Jonas. I have a second name as well, but that's none of your business. And I'm Christian and we're sitting at table recording podcast. Hi. Why have you gone all Russian all of a sudden where you do not use definite article? Oh, because of the book we read, of course. Exactly. Which is Room. Not The Room, as we rather inappropriately childishly pointed out in our last episode, but Room by Emma Donoghue. The book is about Jack, a five-year-old boy. In fact, he turns five at the very first day of the story. And Jack grows up under rather peculiar conditions. He has only one person around him, and that is his mother, whom he calls Ma. But they live in room. Not a room, but just a single room, and that is all he knows of the world. Because as a matter of fact, seven years ago, Ma was abducted and locked up in room, where she had Jack all on her own. Her abductor, whom they only refer to as Old Nick, visits her in the night, and Jack is supposed to be asleep by then, because Ma tries to keep him away from all of that. The book tells the story of their life in room, how they hatch a plan to escape, how they manage to escape in the very middle of the book. And the second half of the book tells about their struggles to adjust to the outside world, or just outside. Emma Donahue published Room in 2010. Until then, she was mainly known for works with an LGBT background. Room was enough of a mainstream success that it became a bestseller. It was awarded many awards, nominated, for example, for the Man Booker Award. And it was also turned into a film last year, which won the main actress, Brie Larson, the Academy Award for Best Actress. So this is something of a contemporary classic, one of those books that people talk about, people really seem to love and people really seem to have a lot invested in. The first thing to note about Room is its extraordinary, unusual style. We've already mentioned the formal structure. The book, at least in the Picador paperback version that I read, has almost exactly 400 pages and the escape happens almost exactly in the middle of the book. It is further divided into five sections. Presence, unlying, dying, after and living. Just before we started the podcast discussing the book, we realized that this structure is not incidental, that these five parts really correspond rather neatly to the five stages of grief. Presence is denial because that's all about Jack still believing in the world of room. It is about trying to live in this world and he doesn't realize that there is an outside. Unlying is about anger, Jack's anger at his mom for spoiling that illusion and his ma's anger at old Nick for keeping them imprisoned for such a long time. The third section, dying, corresponds to the stage of bargaining. It is about ma bargaining with Jack to pretend to be ill so that old Nick will be forced to take him to a hospital. Then it is about her bargaining with old Nick. And lastly, it is about Jack trying to talk to the people in the 
outside world, trying to get them to rescue Ma. After, which deals with the aftermath of the imprisonment and the rescue, corresponds to depression because life is not so sweet in freedom after all. And especially Ma has to experience that and she even tries to commit suicide. And lastly, living is about acceptance, which is really what this all is about. The book is about coming to terms with the outside world and with the world in general. Aren't we clever little fellows figuring all that out with the five stages of grief and so? Actually, let me come to that straight away because throughout reading this, I thought, oh, this is a really clever book. Oh, and look at this illusion, look at that illusion. And aren't we all a bit like Jack? And then I thought of this nice definition of psychoanalysis, which is about the ego encountering the world and being like, ah! Because that's basically what happens to Jack in the second half of the book. And then Donahue held up a mirror to us where Jack, was channel hopping, comes across a talk show where five pretentious dudes sit around and say, oh, well, you know, he's a bit like Theseus, you know, born to a mother who was walled up. Oh, but isn't he a bit like Caspar Hauser? And I had thought so much about Caspar Hauser whilst reading this book. I felt rather embarrassed by that. But that just shows that Donahue is an immensely well-read author. She also published several volumes on literary history. She's a literary scholar herself. And the book nonetheless, is full of literary allusions. There's a list of the 10 books that they do have in room, which are My Big Book of Nursery Rhymes, Dylan the Digger, The Runaway Bunny, Pop-Up Airport, and Alice in Wonderland, and also books without pictures that Jack doesn't find so interesting, The Shack, Twilight, The Guardian, Bittersweet Love, and The Da Vinci Code. Now, I do not believe that these books are coincidental. Of course, The Runaway Bunny is about mothers and children. It is about escape. Nursery rhymes are referenced throughout the book again and again, and they're one of the little rituals that Ma uses to keep Jack safe in his mind. As in Wonderland is an obvious comparison. When Ma starts unlying in the second section and when she starts telling Jack that there is actually an outside, that it's not all just on TV, she says, you know, I'm a bit like Alice. I'm here now, but Alice wasn't always in Wonderland. And lastly, the non-picture books are really obvious comparisons to Room. The Shack, a Christian novel about a man having to deal with the death of his child who he abandoned and finding God in the process, a rather horrible book. These are the kinds of books that an illiterate brute would probably give someone to read. But I think it's amazing that Donahue brings these books in there and connects the themes of these books to her own book, but really makes something a lot better out of these simple themes. I mean, this is, to a large part, about fiction, about the stories we tell to make sense of life and to make life better. This is exactly what Ma does with Jack, telling him stories and trying to make him understand the situation he's in. Also, when she tells him about the outside world, trying to make him understand with these kinds of stories. When they talk about the escape, for example, she says, you'll be rolled up in carpet and then you have to wriggle free, you know, like the Count of Monte Cristo. Uh, I don't know how many five-year-olds you know who would understand that reference. But she has simply told him every story she remembers. There's the story of the Count of Monte Cristo, there's the story of Romeo and Juliet, but then there's also the story of Princess Diana and the story of how the Berlin Wall fell. It's all just stories, and Jack often has a hard time figuring out what is real and what is just a story. That is a very clever way of connecting these two things. And it is very effective, especially during the time they spend in room, when Jack slowly starts to come to terms with the fact that there is an outside world. You mentioned how Jack is impressively intelligent and verbose for a five-year-old, which is, of course, due to him staying in the room. But that also colors his way of telling the story. Because, yes, 
Jack is the only perspective we get for the entirety of Room. And that is a really interesting fact because he probably has the least insight into the situation, at first glance at least, and still Donahue chooses him to be the narrator, the focalizer for what is going on. One obvious reason for this decision is if she had chosen Ma, we probably wouldn't have been able to read through this because her perspective would have been horribly depressing. The captivity, the rape, the stillborn first child she has, that would have been very hard to bear. So this is really a very clever move by Donahue to choose Jack to present this horrible and extraordinary situation from the eyes of a child who doesn't know any better, who never experienced anything else. And it is immensely powerful. It is written in Jack's language. For example, for a lot of the things, he doesn't use definite articles, as we said. So it's not the room, it's not the table, it's room and it's table and it's bed and it's duvet. And the consequence of that is that these become sort of characters. He says good night to all of them each night. <laughs> it's a rather interesting comparison to Robinson Crusoe when you come to think of it, at least the first half, where it's all about them making do with the few things that they have. And it is the most harrowing thing. Also, when he's overwhelmed by the outside world, sometimes his words start floating into each other and are actually presented like that on the page. That's like a little child tripping over their thoughts, literally. You stumble over these strings of words, really, whilst you're in the flow of reading a book, which otherwise is an immensely readable one. This is an extraordinarily clever move to choose this extraordinary perspective of this very literate five-year-old but I think to a certain degree, it's also the book's curse. At least I had to go through a very, very strong suspension of disbelief because I constantly yeah, stumbled across these things. I constantly thought, is a five-year-old, no matter whether they're in captivity or not, really going to choose to describe things in a certain way? Is that really a good way to portray this from this very specific perspective? And sometimes I had the feeling it's also a way to, I don't know, get the tears flowing. Because Jack also has a tendency to have very, very, let's say, deep insights. There are these passages where he makes very grand statements about the state of the world, how people don't have time anymore and how they disregard children and so on. And to me, that smacks of a cliché, the wise child, the fool who sees the world as it is. And I don't think that is necessary. I'm not sure whether it's inherent to that perspective, whether it's always very, very difficult to emulate a child's perspective. And for us as adults, it's hard to see, is that a realistic way or not? But for me, at least, I had to get over that to a certain degree, and I still have my problems with it. I was just really clever as a five-year-old, so I didn't struggle with that at all. I just thought, yeah, that's basically how I talked about the world when I was five. Something else about the style that I found very surprising, which ultimately is about abduction and sexual abuse, is that it is really, really funny. There's some passages where you felt don't you try to get the tears flowing and it definitely worked for me. I basically started crying on page one and every now and then I kept blurting out in sobs as I was reading this in the common room of our department. I'm too cynical for that. Although I, there are some instances where you cannot help but just feel. Even you cannot help but feel. <laughs> what is this? What what strange sensation is there in my chest? And what actually got me most with the crying was when Jack describes their daily ritual of screaming, which they do every day except Saturdays and Sundays, where they stand up by the skylight 
and just scream as loud as they can. And he doesn't realize what it's about, of course, he just thinks it's a game. But this desperation that Ma must feel to try and get out of there simply destroyed me when I read it. But then I burst out laughing every other minute as well. I think the first time was when Jack tells the story of how the little baby Jesus was conceived. Mary was all surprised. She said, how can this be? And then, okay, let it be. The, the, the fact that there's a Beatles reference and a joke hidden in this story told by a five-year-old simply took me so much by surprise. And I so did not expect to have a true and honest belly laugh burst out of me in this novel. And it's littered with things like that. Every now and then there are these moments where you just cannot hold back the laughter, just as even you couldn't hold back the tears. I think that is also tied to the perspective again, that Jack has this very peculiar perspective on things that sometimes clashes with what we or the adults in the book expect. I agree, the humor is surprising and very welcome. But again, sometimes it also has this tendency to go into this kind of, ah, see, he has a better perspective. That's because he's innocent and pure. Although Jack actually isn't that innocent and pure, which brings me to what is basically at the center of this whole story, the relationship between Jack and his ma. Even later on, when they're in the outside world and other characters besides them and old Nick come into play, Jack focuses primarily on his ma, and she is the character we see most clearly from his perspective. And this is an amazingly fascinating relationship, because... On the one hand, it's even referenced in the discussion of the captivity. Ma did an amazing job raising Jack, considering the circumstances. She built up this illusion, but at the same time, she taught him so many things. And I think, from the way it is described, considering that she was 19 when she was taken, she kept an incredible focus. And the love she feels for Jack, even though he is the product of being raped, is so clear in everything she does. In, in fact, she says that Jack saved her and that she then in turn saved him, which is a marvelous subversion of a damsel in distress trope, you might say. So she is in distress and she cannot save herself. And then a man comes along and saves her, but she also saves him and they really save each other, which is beautiful. But the book is not just a happy portrayal of family relationships because in a TV interview, Mars asked, well, did you ever think that you should have just told your abductor to take Jack and put him in front of a hospital, that he could have had a normal childhood. And she obviously bristles at the suggestion, but this is also the question that basically drives her to suicide. And there are many, many instances where we see that this relationship isn't just happy despite the circumstances. There's so many instances where we see that Ma is suffering from what is going on and that there are instances where she's really angry with Jack. And he with her. At one point he tells her I hate you and she says that's okay and he's so confused how can it be okay if he hates Ma we as the readers also feel with Ma when Jack doesn't want to escape when he doesn't realize what is at stake for her it really really makes you angry to a certain degree as well and then you realize hang on I can't be angry at this five-year-old child and it's really interesting this is an amazing portrayal of a young strong woman in dire circumstances who's neither a damsel in distress nor a all-loving mother 
she is an amazing character. There's a very interesting incident during the big interview after they've been rescued where she mentions, yeah, well, I had an abortion at 18 and I didn't regret that. That is a small detail and it's not treated as something big, so to say, but it adds to her acceptance of Jack and her love for Jack is all the more clear after that. But of course, in the second half, there's not just Ma and Jack anymore, but the rest of the family comes in. So Ma's parents, actually her adoptive parents, although, as we learn, they have split up, partly because, well, they lost their daughter. Another complication there. Also, she had an older brother, or adoptive brother, and he has a partner and child of his own now. There's the new boyfriend of grandma. And all these people come in and mess things up, basically. It's very chaotic. Jack doesn't like the people at first. He's scared of them. Then he's not so sure. In a very surreal scene, uh, his uncle and his partner take him and his little cousin to the mall. And it is an absolute disaster. They actually wanted to take him to the Natural History Museum. But just the mall is too much. And I, I, I can understand. Sometimes when I walk into a mall, I have this sensory overload as well. That sequence is really interesting. On the one hand, you also have that humor again that you mentioned. On the other hand, I didn't like it that much because the contrast between Jack and his cousin, who seems to be a spoiled brat, that seemed to be too cliche again. But, 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 but the cousin is just three years old, you know? You cannot expect a three-year-old who's just normal to be as advanced as a very precocious five-year-old who grew up under extraordinary circumstances. I don't think Donahue is ever judging the three-year-old. Still, there it smacks a bit of this comparison to show how special Jack and how special Ma really are. I don't think it was intentional. Jack is the one who steals something in the mall. True. I think the problem is that, of, of course, these new characters don't have the same depth as Jack and Ma do because we spend less time with them, because Jack doesn't have such a vested interest in them. They're more of an ensemble than really characters. I think the one person who really emerges as a character is his step-grandfather. Surprisingly... He, who never had any kids because he said, well, I guess I had better things to do, is the one person who can really deal with Jack. He reassures Jack. He reassures him and comforts him in a way that the grandmother at first can't, which is, of course, very traumatic for the grandmother as well because she just got her daughter back, then she discovers she has a grandson, and then the grandson doesn't want to look at her. Although it's kind of unfair towards the grandmother because she is portrayed again in a sometimes kind of cliched style and you maybe that is portraying her helplessness that she cannot deal with the situation apart from sticking to cliches but some of the things she does you think this is not how I would treat my daughter whom I haven't seen for seven years who's been in the hands of a madman your very real daughter who definitely exists in the world already you don't have a daughter my daughter might be fictitious but she's an awesome girl love you honey Sorry, Daddy can't be at your football game today, but, you know, he has a podcast to record. And also, you are fucking fictional. Hey, don't talk about my daughter like that. There are also some other things where you really can't believe what people are saying. One important aspect that becomes prevalent in the second part of the book is the depiction and the critique of media culture. Obviously, the case of Jack and Ma becomes a media sensation. If you look at similar cases in the real world, 
the Fritzl case, the Kampusch case, both of them Austrian. I wonder, what is it with those Austrians? Maybe we've been hating on the Irish wrongly. Maybe it should be... No, no, we no. haven't hated on the... the... The Irish know why we hate them. So obviously the press, the media have a vested interest in all of this. And they are seen as horrible. In the interview, Ma criticizes the kinds of attitudes and views that people represented by the media seem to have about her situation, what she should have done, what she shouldn't have done. And she says, well, none of you went through the same situation. The media and the modern world in general are seen very critical, are seen as superficial. And while obviously neither Jack in the end nor Ma want to go back to room, there is a certain something about the way they see the world that seems to be more thoughtful. Donahue is intelligent enough to not try to answer this question. She kind of leaves it open whether there is something to their experience that is maybe special in the good way. But at least the implication is there that modern society, the modern world, is too focused on things that really don't count and the important things lie elsewhere. I have to correct you on a point, actually, because you say that neither Ma nor Jack want to go back to room. Jack constantly wants I to go Jack back to room. I said Jack at the end. Yeah, in the end, because that's it, really. Jack learns not to want to go back to room. And that is another thing about the style, actually, that completely overwhelmed me. I often have the problem that I finish reading a book and the last sentence just sort of fizzles away. But in room, it's an incredible last sentence. It ends with them actually going back to room and the last words of the book are then we go out the door not door anymore but the door jack has moved on and that is articulated in his language very effective maybe also kind of obvious but well it works but you're right the media is generally presented in not such a good way understandably though i disagree with what you say about the presentation of the modern world in general one of the first things that ma does when she's out of room and she has recovered and she's got some medical treatment she goes on the internet she looks up cases and she looks up her old friends on as jack calls it a book of faces which is a nice way to get around some copyright issues, I believe. That scene, maybe more than any other, more even than the screaming, more even than her rescue, made me cry. Because we are not islands. We exist in a network with other people, of course. And to be taken out of that network for seven years, that suddenly made it very real to me. How she had missed the progress of technology, the progress of society. And it's not all presented as negative. These new technologies really help her as well. This seems to be the attitude for many of the topics that Donahue tackles. And they are quite grand topics. This ambivalence also is present when it comes to another big topic, namely religion. This book is filled with religion. And as I stress every time, I have my problems with religion. But in this book, it really didn't bother me at all. There's constant references to the baby Jesus. They thank the baby Jesus for the food every time they have a meal. They have a picture of the baby Jesus and his cousin, John the Baptist. In the interview, Ma is actually asked, so you taught him to pray to Jesus. Was that something that was important to you? And then she just looks at the interview and says, oh, it was just one of the things that I could pass on to him. Later, Jack says that they go to two churches, but yeah, he didn't really like the one. 
and it's not brought up whether or not they will go back there. So religion plays a part, but a very subdued one in as a general background noise, you could say. But God's name is referenced all of the time because when Jack talks about the sun, he says it's God's face. And the sun is one of the few things that comes through the skylight into room that somehow connects them to the outside world. So I think religion is not so much in the background, really. This is a book that deals with this question of faith, really. The question of how to keep up hope, how to keep up optimism when everything seems to be stacked against you. And obviously the antagonist, Old Nick, well, Old Nick is another name for the devil. So this is basically a bit like a mystery play. Jack as the everyman who has to deal with very, very deep questions of faith, of believing, of unbelieving. And I think religion really is at the core of the whole thing. Even the mother-son relationship. Well, it's not immaculate conception, but there is a certain degree of Mary, baby Jesus interaction there as well. And Ma denies that he's uh, old Nick's son. She She's challenged on that by the interviewer, by her father, who say, well, don't you look at him and see your abductor? And he, she says, no, he's 100% mine. So she wishes he was a, a sort of immaculate conception. And of course, as mentioned before, Jack tells the story of the immaculate conception. <clears throat> no, 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 no! What? We're doing the mistake of mixing up the immaculate conception and the conception of Jesus, which are two different things. Oh yeah, sorry. Which but you as an actual Catholic should have known. <laughs> but in popular usage, the immaculate conception is used for the conception of Jesus. Is incorrect though. But anyway, she wishes he would have been conceived without male interference like Jesus was. Also, of course, the books that they have, The Shack, is a Christian novel, Twilight, written by a Mormon, and as we discussed in our Twilight episode, the religion really comes out strong in this one, and The Da Vinci Code, all about religion and the church and conspiracies, of course. So in a way, you could say that Donahue is making fun of more simplistic religious literature that gives clear yes and no answers, because this really doesn't. And that's something that I admire about it. As you said, this is about faith. This is about struggling under immensely adverse circumstances. And even I, as an, not just an unreligious, but as an anti-religious person, take a step back there and I say, who am I to judge a person on having a certain faith for themselves that gives them hope in a terrible situation? And as I said, this is a book about telling stories and about making things real by telling stories about them. And this becomes clear actually fairly close to the beginning where Jack wonders whether old Nick is real because he says he brings us the groceries, he brings Sunday treat, the special things they get once a week, but Ma doesn't like to talk about him. And there is this haunting sentence. Jack wonders if Ma thinks that talking about old Nick would make him more real. So again, this question of what is real, what is not real, and how talking about it and telling stories about it might make it more real. So it's really appropriate that this very religious book is our Easter episode, sort of. Uh, like Jesus emerging from the tomb, these two emerge after seven years from Room. Very appropriate. This is basically an allegory. Room is the world, and we are kept in Room. Now, it's not the obviously the only reading, and I don't want to be as pretentious as those guys in there. This is a story about something that unfortunately is very real in the world. But Donahue is very clever in making this terribly simple or simply terrible story quite complicated, ambivalent, and very, very literary. 
So when it comes to whether or not you should read this, whether this deserves the label great literature, <laughs> I think it's fairly obvious that my answer is yes. I think in the last half of a decade, there has not been a book that has moved me as profoundly as Room has. Read it, even though you might recoil from it because you think that the themes are too upsetting. That's not what the book is about. And you can read the book as a book about family, about faith, about dealing with the world. And I cannot imagine that anyone's life would not be enriched by reading it. This is an absolute must for me. No, no, it isn't. You really don't have to read this. It is a very good book. It is a book that is much more clever than you might think. I was pleasantly surprised because I had somehow listed this as kind of better airport literature, but nothing special. This is a really good book. Do you have to read it? No. You can read it. Good. But it is not so special. It is not unique. It has a very unique way of dealing with a very unique perspective and linking that to life and the big topics of life in general. You can find that in other books as well. So you don't have to read it. But you do. But you don't. Okay, so since you know so much better what people should or should not read, uh, why don't you recommend something else besides this piece of shit? You said it, not I. Yeah, but you expressed it. Well, I express also that you should shut the fuck up and read something that is also a very unique perspective on growing up, on coming to terms with the world and how meaningless and yet beautiful it is. It's The Baron in the Trees by Italo Calvino. It is the story of a young nobleman who decides that rather than conforming to society, he will just go up in a tree. And he actually manages to live a very, very happy life up in that tree. It's the very opposite of room where someone goes from extraordinary circumstances to a normal life and dealing with normal life. This is someone who doesn't want to deal with normal life and lives an extraordinary life. But I think the themes are there. The question of do we have to accept what is there? Are we the masters of our own fate? The Baron in the Trees by Italo Calvino. I have two recommendations. My first is actually the book that I'm going to start reading right now after reading Room. Because I realized what an extraordinary author Donahue is. And she really went from an author that I had not read anything by before to one of my absolute favorites in the span of two days. The next book that I'm going to read by her is The Woman Who Gave Birth to Rabbits. It's a collection of short stories about things that really happened historically. Of course, extraordinary things like a woman giving birth to rabbits, which was actually a scam that some people ran in the 18th century. This book could not be more perfect for me and I look forward to reading it tremendously. My second recommendation is also about growing up and about storytelling and about telling a story from a child's perspective. It is is, surprise, surprise, a film, The Fall by Tarsem Singh. One of my absolute favorites. Christian is nodding his head. <laughs> it's a beautiful film and deals with children believing in stories maybe too much. But then again, is that a bad thing or not? As you said, it's beautiful. And that's the most striking thing about The Fall. That's what it's most known for, even though it is unfortunately still a relatively unknown movie. It is gorgeous. Watch it on the biggest, highest resolution screen that you can find. But also, it is a great story about a little girl who meets a man in a hospital and he tells her a story. But what we 
see on screen is her imagining the story, not what he tells. So there's little differences, little idiosyncrasies that come from her imagination. It is immensely touching and it always makes me cry, just as this book did. So two recommendations, The Woman Who Gave Birth to Rabbits and The Fall. Now, usually we would ask each other, what are we going to read next? But this time... We both know, actually, don't we? Because it is that time of the year. The Christmas! End. No, Easter. Not Christmas. Oh. It is that time of year in spring where we celebrate the death, but also the birth of the most important man in the history of the world. Uh, of course, no, I don't mean Jesus. I mean William Shakespeare, whose birthday is on the 23rd of April. And in his honor, from the 9th of April onwards, we will be releasing a short mini-episode every day until the 23rd. 14 episodes, and what else could we discuss in 14 episodes but 14 sonnets. So we are going to read 14 of Shakespeare's sonnets, and we're going to discuss them, compare them to each other. Very brief episodes, obviously, because each day... Phew, but it is perfect to, to celebrate a writer who is not only an amazing dramatist, but also... Quite the good poet, I think. So, what are your favorite Shakespeare sonnets? Why don't you send us some suggestions at outsideofadogcast at gmail.com. Also find us on Facebook, and obviously you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. You can leave a review there and a rating. Thank you very much to everyone who has done that already. But we still need more. We still don't have an average rating on iTunes. Please just go there and rate us. Well, five stars would be nice, but give us an honest rating and tell us what you like about the podcast or if you just want us to fuck off. So look forward to 14 days of poems and Merry Christmas. Easter. Uh, no, uh, Shakespeare. Merry Shakespeare, everyone. Ho, ho, ho. You're a ho. Your sister is getting married. Congratulations. Thank you very much for listening. For more information, visit outsideofadogcast.com. Unbreakable. Damn it. It's a miracle. I had to think about that all the time. All the time.